Hey guys, we're so excited to be joining together to worship this morning online as we're getting ready to kick things off. Uh, a few things just to kind of go through. First of all, we want to know you're here. So if you have the North Point app, click right there where it says Let's Connect. Fill out that form so we can stay connected together. Uh, if you don't have the app, no worries. You can simply text the word Guest NCC to 94090. We'll send that same form to you in a text message. It's incredibly helpful if you take just two minutes, fill that out for us. Something else you can do is you can worship today through your giving. Simply text NCC Give to 77977. We'll send you a link there so you can worship through giving as well. Recently, at the end of December, we took together our Christmas offering, and you guys were so incredibly generous uh, that we actually collected just under $12,000. That is in Incredible, And we want to let you guys know what we get to do with that. We're going to take the first $4,000 and we're going to divvy it up between organizations like uh, Redeemer's Food Pantry, uh, the Basic Needs Shelter, uh, Beacon of Hope, as well as the Greater Lansing Food Bank to meet some very basic needs for people uh, who have those needs right now. Now, we're also going to take an additional $4,000 and we're going to send it to Habitat for Humanity. And then that last $4,000, we're going to send to one of my favorite organizations, and that is Water 4. They're going to be able to take that money and completely fund a community well project in a third world location that currently has no safe drinking water. All of this happens because of your guys' generosity to meet some very tangible needs. So way to go, guys. We are so pumped about that. we got a couple things happening right here on property uh, towards the end of the month. We're starting a brand new equip group on January 27th called Survey of the Bible. Basically, we're going to take eight weeks to get a full understanding of the scope, the people, the places, and the continuity of the Bible, and we're going to do all of it in a super fun way. You can check that out on the North Point app uh, or online to get more info and register as well. And then the last Sunday of the month, January 31st, is our Compassion Sunday. For the past few years, we have partnered with Compassion International uh, in sponsoring children from all over the world. We've especially had an emphasis in Ecuador because we have a great church plant that we were able to partner with and be a part of there as well. So uh, we would encourage you guys, we'll have more info on that day, once again, January 31st, but uh, be thinking about some additional sponsorship or maybe even first-time sponsorship that you can be a part of through Compassion International. Uh, Settle in, make sure you've got the app ready where it says this week's talk as we're going to continue on with week two of NT90. You sure? The questions are going to get harder this morning. I'm just being honest. So, They, whoever they are, when in, like to teach people how to speak in groups, they're like, always start with easy questions that nobody feels threatened to answer. And you go, how you doing? You go, 
wait, this is church. Are we supposed to talk back? I don't know if he's being serious. Or... We're going to have some interactive components over the next few minutes where I'll ask you a couple questions and we'll actually see if uh, you guys are willing to answer. We didn't try this at the 8.30. I, I, I'm a little nervous right now because I don't know which one we're recording and putting online so what I say is forever out on the interwebs. We didn't try this at 8.30 because I don't trust them to answer back. But 9.30, I do. I trust you guys. So we'll see what happens. We are in a new series called NT90, reading the New Testament in 90 days. We are one week in. You've been reading the New Testament for one week. How's it going? See, this is the 9.30 service. I'm telling you, man. That's great. Right? Good stuff. Um, I got to kind of be honest, I love uh, the Bible. I love reading the Bible. I know not everybody is wired that way. Not everybody f- maybe feels the same way, but I absolutely love reading the Bible. So for me, this challenge is not so much like, hey, read the Bible. For me, it's more like, hey, you're going to have to read a lot faster and a lot more in one sitting because I'll get locked up on something. I'll read something and I'll just want to like spend time picking that apart. So I'm wired. And to, to do this in 90 days, I know that I got to move quick. So for me, uh, that's, that's the challenge because I, I love reading the Bible. It hasn't always been that way. Like, I haven't always loved reading the Bible. I didn't, like, come out of the womb, like, hey, let's read the Bible, or whatever. Um, Let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story of when I fell in love with the Bible. It's 1997-ish. I'm 23 years old. I've been married for um, going on two years, and, uh, and I'm doing bivocational ministry. That's a pastor word for when you work uh, at a church doing full-time work, getting paid part-time, and working uh, a bunch of other jobs to pay the bills. Bivocational sounds so much better, doesn't it? So that's what I was doing uh, out in a little state that doesn't matter called California. I know. I understand completely. And, um, and so that's what I was doing. And so uh, in 97, the uh, opportunity came, the church that I was serving at, to uh, take a trip to Israel. They, they, they call it a familiarization trip. They only take pastors. They take you at a very cut rate. It's super, super cheap. You pay like less than a quarter of what it actually costs because their hope is if they take you, then you'll bring other trips in, in the future. Does that make sense? So I had this opportunity to go for this really cheap price. So I sold plasma and beat the couch cushions. That, that part's not true. But, uh, but we found, we scrounged up enough money to pay for a ticket for me to go. And it was uh, amazing. Like you would anticipate anybody would say if they went to Israel and did that, that 10, 12 day trip. It was absolutely amazing. I, I, to walk in the places that you've, you read about in the Bible, to, 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 to connect to the ground that Paul was part of to see places like Caesarea Philippi. I, I had never really flown on an airplane before. I'd only been on a plane one other time. And so that was, and it's like the whole experience was just phenomenal. I, I was with some other guys that I was doing ministry with, and so it was like being there with friends. So it was just this amazing experience. But there's two things that I remember some, whatever this is, 20 years later or whatever, two key things that I still remember. The first thing that I learned on that trip is that Western media lies, like a lot. 
Now, I know you laugh because you're like, well, we know that. Well, I didn't know that in 97, right? I was like, God just thought they reported the news. Maybe they did. I don't know. But, but here's how that went down. I'm in Israel, and uh, this is in uh, some element of uh, the Gulf War. I think it might have been Desert Storm. Uh, I'm in Israel, and my wife is back in the U.S., and she's hearing on the news that everybody in Israel is running to get gas masks because Saddam Hussein is launching scuds at Israel that have biological weapons on them. And so everybody is, is clamoring and, and, and rushing to get gas masks. That's what my wife is hearing. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in the heart of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, sipping tea at some cafe, blissfully unaware that apparently all of Israel is melting down because that is not what I'm seeing at all. Now, this was, this was kind of before, like, inexpensive cell phone international plans. And so later that night, when I called home to check in, my wife is freaking out on the phone, like, are you dead? Do you have your gas mask? And I'm like, I don't even know where to go to get a gas mask. I don't know what a gas mask is. So now I'm freaking out, right? So, so I grab our tour guide, his, uh, our tour guide, mid-70-year-old named Mickey, Jewish guy. He had been in a number of, of wars. He was part of that 1948 crew that put up the flag over on Temple Mount that allowed uh, Israel to be called nation, whatever. So I asked Mickey, I said, hey, Mickey, do we need to get gas masks? And he said, why? And I said, because Saddam is launching scuds at us. And he looks me in the eye, and he gets real quiet. I'll never forget. He puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, Chris, Saddam is always launching scuds at us. He's nobody. He can't hit anything. Now, I don't know if any of that is true. I'm only telling you the story, right, of what he said. And in that moment, I had this realization, I don't think the media is always getting it uh, as accurate as they could. Here's the second thing I learned from that trip, about me at least. The second thing I learned on the trip um, is that as, as we went through the days and there was this one moment where I was standing uh, on the temple stairs, the temple like you read about in the temple that Jesus talked to people and healed people on the temple stairs and whatnot. Temple stairs is actually portions of that that are original. A lot of them have been destroyed and whatnot. But there are sections of it that, that could have been where Jesus stood. And I'm standing in that section just kind of looking out, and there's a bunch of people there. And I'm like, I know this will be revolutionary for you, but I was like, oh, my gosh, Jesus could have stood here. And it just blew my mind. And so all the, the experiences we'd had on that trip, all of it came flooding in that everything I'd been reading about in the Bible for years, those places and the people and the events were true. Now, like, I always believed they were true, but, like, they became, like, truly true. You know what I mean? Like, really real. To me, And it launched for me this love, this passion for reading the Bible. So I didn't always love reading the Bible, but Israel uh, helped me to fall in love with reading the Bible. So we're in this series, reading through the New Testament in 90 days. And if you're with us on this last, this last week, you got about halfway through the book of Matthew. Let me just spend two minutes talking about what Matthew is, just some, maybe by way of review, or maybe this is new info for folks. But Matthew is a book that we call a gospel. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and extra points, Bible awards for all of you, all right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them Gospels. Gospel is the old English word that really means good news or good story or good telling, and we call it that, we call those Gospels because they are these good stories of the life of Jesus. They are these biographies of Jesus' life. Each Gospel has a slightly different perspective. It's these eyewitnesses who told the story of Jesus' life. But as you read with us over these next few weeks, you'll realize that Matthew's a little different than John and Mark's a little different than Luke. And, and that's actually a good thing. 
We, we, we want to see, and I think there, it validates the, the truth, the veracity of the stories of Jesus, because if the, the, the tellings were exactly the same word for word, we would be suspicious, right? I mean, just for a minute, the parents in the room, you get home, the lamp is broken, you line your three kids up, you say, what happened? And they each tell you the same exact story, word for word. Yeah, come on. Right. Well, uh, law enforcement, when, when they're investigating something, whether it's a crime or a traffic accident or whatever it is, and they gather the witnesses and they say, hey, what happened? They'll often interview them separately, and they want to see slightly different versions of the same story. Same basic details, but with some differences because we recognize that, that when, when people see something, they see it from their perspective. And they, when they tell that story, they tell it from their perspective with their own kind of flavor on it. And so the Gospels are these incredibly rich stories of Jesus' life, all slightly different because that helps us to understand how true that is. And so Matthew tells or writes the book Matthew. It's his version or his recollection of the stories of Jesus. Matthew tells us about himself in Matthew 9 that he was a tax collector. Tax collectors were not well liked back in the day. I don't know what the what the, what the connection to today would be. I don't want to say IRS tax man because there's going to be an IRS tax man in here and he'll feel really bad and sad. And I don't want that. But, but tax collectors were not well liked. He was a tax collector that Jesus came to and invited him to be a follower of his and Matthew did. And we know that Matthew, he tells us that he hung out with all kinds of sinners because at Matthew's retirement party, when he retires from tax collecting and enters into this following Jesus around thing, he invites all his friends to that party, and the religious people show up. They love to do this, and they're like, hey, you're eating with sinners and other tax collectors. And Matthew's like, no, these are just friends. <laughs> and so, so Matthew has this interesting friendship group. The, the book was written down somewhere around 70 to 100 A.D., and the best dating that we have is between 70 and 80 AD. And I know if, if you, this isn't your world to figure out when like antiquities were written down, that, that's not a huge span of time. I know if we say between 70 and 80, you're like, that's 10 years. Can't we narrow it any further? That's actually a really, really narrow thing already um, because of the way antiquity works. It's not like today. So it's written down somewhere between 70 to 80 AD. And I know I just did numbers and some of you tuned out uh, and that's okay. But come back because it's really important because that's only 40 years after Jesus left the planet. It's only 40 years. That means that people who were part of those original events that Matthew wrote down, they would have still been alive. And so if Matthew would have been writing down things and be like, hey, see, this happened, and people were like, no, it did, and I was there, it didn't happen. I mean, it would destroy the entire book, and, and that hasn't happened. So that's an incredibly encouraging thing. And again, I know if we, when we say, like, hey, 40 years after Jesus, you're like, 40 years? It seems so long. If you're 80 years old, my guess is 40 years probably doesn't seem that long, right? You're like, boy, I went like that. Right? And back in the day, because we think with our modern perspective where we send an email and it's there one second later, but back in the day, 40 years, that was not a long time to travel from, from this, to have it written down, to be part of what the church was already using. So we're talking only a few years, and all of that just helps us have a sense that what Matthew wrote down is true and accurate. It's interesting because Matthew focuses on making sure that we understand how Jesus was king, that Jesus was this promised Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for 
from eternity past. Matthew really wants us to understand that. And if you're using sermon-based questions in your life group or on your own this, uh, this week, you'll see that one of those questions really dials in on that and asks you to come up with some reasons for that because I think there are some clues as you read through Matthew about Matthew's perspective. So, uh, the gospel, Matthew is all about the story of Jesus' life. And in Matthew 9.35, he tells us that Jesus spent a lot of time going around preaching and teaching and healing. And if, if you've read any of the, the gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, then you're already aware of that. And in terms of Jesus' preaching or his teaching work, he really does mostly two things. He asks questions and he tells stories. And, and that's where I want to dial in today. Stories. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he tell stories? At least a third and probably closer to half of Jesus' words are stories. Uh, in church circles, we've often called them parables. But really, they're just stories. And the question I want to ask is why? Uh, in a lot of ways, it seems really inefficient to tell a story when you're trying to make a point. Or, or it certainly allows opportunity for misunderstanding Well, it's interesting because the disciples ask the same exact question in Matthew chapter 13. They actually ask Jesus, why are you doing this? And in a, I feel like it's a rare Jesus moment because a lot of times Jesus is like, ah, boys. But this time he actually just answers their question, right? It's kind of cool, Matthew 13. But before we get to that, just two minutes on what a parable is. I'm going to use the word story all morning long because I think that's the right word for it. But what a parable is, there's three types of parables, if you care. Um, One, we would call a true parable. It's this idea of a story that's told uh, that has some meaning to it. Uh, An example might be the, the, the parable of the lost son, or if you grew up in church circles back in the day, the prodigal son, right? This idea, hey, listen up, there was this kid, and he didn't like, so he asked dad for his inheritance, and he took off, and he squandered it, and he lost everything, and he was starving to death, so he came home, and dad just embraced him back in. It's a story. It's got characters. It's called a true parable. There's a type that's called a similitude. A similitude is an illustration taken from everyday life. Jesus would say, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. <laughs> Wait, the what? Yeast, very natural thing, something they would have used every day, and it's a, a part of their everyday life. Or um, fruit trees, like you'll know their fr- the type of tree by the fruit they produce. Fruit trees, a very natural, everyday, common thing. The third type of parable is what we'd call a metaphor or a simile. It really is a comparison between two things. Jesus, for example, said, uh, you are the salt of the earth. It's a type of parable, right? Or he, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, he go on to describe a lost coin or a lost sheep or whatever it might be. And these are the different types of parables. Parables have a purpose. They're not just uh, fun stories for the heck of telling a story. They have a purpose, and their purpose is really calling forth a response on the part of the hearer. They weren't used to just like augment the message. They were the message, And the story itself required some element of a response. People walked away from a parable thinking, oh, man, I need to. Oh, man, I don't want to. (laughs) It was a good response or a bad response. There was some kind of response. Parables seldom needed interpretation for the original hearer. It used things that made sense to them and the culture that made sense to them. And what they were often surprised at was the turn. Somewhere in that story, somewhere in that parable, something happened that just wasn't like natural or expected. They call it the turn. It was very unexpected. When you read Jesus' stories, you kind of get that sense. Matter of fact, some might say 
that, that, that the, the, the religious leaders, that the, the leaders at the time killed Jesus because of his stories. And we know that God had a lot going on in that, and it was because of us and to, to die for our sin and pay the penalty for sin. But on the, the surface human level, they killed Jesus because of the stories, not because they misunderstood him, but because they understood him really, really well. Right. Historically, uh, the parables have been interpreted as allegories, meaning every element in the story has some sort of a spiritual counterpart. So like every person, every character, every rock, every bird, every path, every seed, everything has a spiritual counterpart that means something. And the challenge with this is that every interpreter had different allegorical counterparts. Make sense? And they would never agree on what they were. And so it was like, what? So it was like almost impossible to understand what was meant. It was really probably a bad way of interpreting. By the end of the 19th century, interpretation swung away from that, and like it often does, went a whole pendulum to the other side and said, well, each parable only has one moral. So they went to a moralizing approach, one moral of the story, kind of like Aesop's fables, if you're old enough to remember those, right? You just read the story and it's cute, but it has only one moral. And really that's tempered now to what I think is the best approach for interpreting parables, and this is how most folks do it today. Looking at parables, it was what we would call narrative fiction, it's where, like, there's different characters in the story. We can relate to those different characters, and we can all relate to different characters in the story and experience the story from the perspective of that character, which then allows for us to have lots of different personal applications. And many would say there's tons of different possible personal applications, but there's only one interpretation. There's not endless interpretations, but there might be a bunch of different applications. See, Jesus told these specific stories to a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose, and sometimes that fact can get lost in our drive to understand the parable. We always, like any good, if I, if I use the word hermeneutic, any good hermeneutics, any good interpretation of Scripture should do, it goes back to that original context. Why did Jesus tell that story? What did he mean when he told it for his original audience? All that to say, Jesus' disciples asked him why he told so many stories, and here's the answer. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible, we'd love you to have that out. If you uh, have the North Point app, this is a great time to pull that out. The verses are in there. There's some follow-along stuff as well. The verses will also pop up on the screen just in case. Here we go, the big question. In chapter 13, Matthew, verse 1, it says, At about that same time, Jesus left the house and sat on the beach. And in no time at all, a crowd gathered along the shoreline, forcing him to get into a boat. Using the boat as a pulpit, he addressed his congregation, telling stories. We just, we just start there to say, like, on the beach with Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? Some of you heard the word beach, and you were already there. <laughs> I just heard beach, and I was there. I don't care what happens. Right? On the beach with Jesus, telling Stories. Clearly, Jesus knew how to tell a story. That, that just makes you want to, like, grab a blanket and, and curl up. Now, as an aside, let me just say, uh, this morning I'm using what's called the message version of the Bible. And the message version is a very readable, very modern uh, translation 
of the Bible. And I know if you're a Bible version geek, you have some thoughts in your head right now. And that's okay. I'm just using this because, frankly, for uh, NT90, that's how I'm reading it. I'm reading it in the message because, for me, the message version just puts everything really fresh and different. Matter of fact, it's kind of funny because a lot of times I'll be reading it in the message and I'll be all, the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus wasn't on a beach. And then I'll go read, like, an approved version. And I'll be like, oh, it does say that. And so, for me, that's really helpful so it's fresh. So I'm using the message version today. If that's a version that you're interested in or you want to check out, you can get it free on the app that we're using on version. You can find it all over the place. So, okay, there's, that's for free. Chapter uh, 13, verse 3, here's what it says. It says, uh, Jesus, as he launches into a story, he says, what do you make of this? A farmer planted seed, and as he scattered the seed, some fell on the road, and the birds ate it, and some fell on the gravel, and it sprouted quickly, but it didn't put down roots. And when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Some fell in weeds, and as it came up, it was strangled by the weeds. But some fell on good earth and produced a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. Are you listening to this? Really listening. Jesus launches into this story, and I love the way the message puts how he launches into it with, what do you make of this? Like, isn't that a great intro? Doesn't it make you just want to lean in and listen and have this dialogue? And so Jesus goes on to tell this really simple story. It's not like it's rocket science. We don't have to dig too hard to understand it. Farmers scattering seed. There's four kinds of soils that it falls on. One is that it falls on the road and birds come and, and eat it away. And one falls in gravel and it's like not enough soil so it starts to sprout but it burns out with the sun. The other one falls in weeds and the weeds choke it out. And the other one falls on good soil and it grows to this exponential growth. And it seems pretty natural after hearing this story, especially in an agrarian culture, that they would be thinking, well, man, I want that fourth kind of soil, right? And then it doesn't seem to be a huge leap to begin thinking, well, honestly, I want to be that fourth kind of soil. And so it's not rocket science. I mean, that's kind of the story. So we get to verse 10, and the disciples uh, grab Jesus. The disciples come up to him and asked, why do you tell stories? And here we are where we started a few minutes ago, answering the question, why does Jesus tell stories? Why doesn't Jesus just come straight out and say, hey, stop it, (laughs) or hey, you should obey God, start listening to him, sermon over, go home. Why, Why does he tell it in stories? Why that? Let me ask you a question and see what comes out, and this is the interactive part just by ground rules here. Why does your, or why did your, why, why does your dad tell stories? This just got dangerous, huh? Oh, bad dad jokes, right? Why does dad tell dad jokes? Jokes are really stories, aren't they? Little short stories. You remember them? Dad tells stories, so you remember them? What about this? Why do commercials, the best commercials, why do commercials tell stories? Sure, commercials want you to buy the product, but they could say, like, hey, deodorant, buy it. But no, they tell this whole story, right? Like, like if you use this deodorant, then you're going to be this macho man, and your beard will grow in 30 seconds, and the women will flock to you. Deer will just stand there and allow you to shoot them. They'll fall over dead for you. It's amazing, this deodorant. Why do they tell that story? What's that? Oh, you remember it. Interest, association. Uh, why is a big deal, right? Changes your thinking. Why do movies tell stories? Okay, new knowledge, comprehend things that hasn't existed before. 
Why do movies tell stories? The best movies. Keeps your interest. Entertainment. Hold all those thoughts. Let's go back to Jesus. Verse 11 says this. Disciples came up and asked, why do you tell stories? And Jesus replied, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights, the understandings, they flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge the people toward a welcome awakening. In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it, listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again where he says, your ears are open, but they don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but don't see a thing. People are stupid. They stick their fingers in their ears. They won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look, and they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. But you have God-blessed eyes, eyes that see. And God blessed ears, ears that hear a lot of people, prophets, and humble believers among them would have given anything to see what you're seeing today, to hear what you're hearing, but never had that chance. Why does Jesus tell stories? To create readiness. He says it. To create readiness, to nudge people towards actually listening. So the, the disciples were Jews. They had all this Bible, God background from birth. They studied the Bible. They memorized most of it. It, it was part of their matrix, right? And the, and the disciples had been with Jesus now probably a couple of years. And so they had this taste of what, like, kingdom living with God through Jesus was like. They had a taste of it. But not everybody else had that privilege. Many simply just weren't there yet. And Jesus wasn't looking for this repeat of what happened in Isaiah's day where people just didn't listen and they didn't hear and they chose to not see. He didn't want that. It wasn't that Jesus was trying to hide stuff. It was that Jesus was trying to create readiness for people to hear. And I submit that Jesus told stories for the same reason that dad told stories and commercials tell stories and movies tell stories, which it makes people really want to lean in and listen. I don't know. I, I, if we were having coffee, if we were allowed to have coffee right now, I, I'd ask you, like, what do you think about that? The idea that Jesus told stories so that people would really want to lean in and listen. Look at verse 18. It says this. Jesus goes on, he says this, says, study the story of the farmer planting seeds. Jesus doesn't do this often where he explains his parable because most of the time they're pretty understandable, but he does for this time because he wants to explain something to the boys that are with him there. He says, study the story of the farmer planting seed. When anyone hears news of the kingdom and doesn't take it in, it just remains on the surface. So the evil one comes along and plucks it right out of the person's heart. This is the seed the farmer scatters on the road. The seed cast on the gravel, this is the person who hears and instantly responds with enthusiasm. But there's no soil of character, and so when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arrives, there's nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds is the person who hears the kingdom news, but weeds of worry and illusions of getting more and wanting everything under the sun strangle what was heard, and nothing comes of it. The seed cast on good earth is the person who hears and takes in the news and then produces a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. 
Jesus reveals the, the, the explanation so that people, are, his guys, are clear on what it means. And it's not rocket science. Still, the road, he says, it's like people who hear, but they don't take it in. And so the devil comes along and just takes it away. The, the gravel is people who hear this, this amazing message of God, get all excited right in the beginning, but don't develop roots, don't develop any kind of depth. And so it burns out and it wanes. And, and the people that, the, the weeds, it's like people who hear this amazing great story of who Jesus is and what it looks like to live in kingdom life, but the worries of life choke it out, and so it dies. And then he says, the fourth one is good earth, people who hear the good news, develop spiritual disciplines and roots, and there's this exponential growth that happens in their life. And then Jesus goes on, and he says this in verse 24, he told another story, and in verse 31, and another story, and in verse 33, and another story. Like, like Jesus just kept telling stories. So we get to verse 34, and it says this. All Jesus did that day was tell stories. A long storytelling afternoon. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't <laughs> that just be fun? But I, I was like, what if that was the epitaph on your great-grandfather's grave? He just told stories. We had long storytelling afternoons. Isn't that sweet? And that's what Jesus did. He told stories all that day, long storytelling afternoon. Jesus told stories because the commodity of his day was stories. That's what sold it to people. That's what got people ready to hear. That's what caused people to miss lunch and sit down in a gigantic crowd of 5,000 just to hear Jesus talk. I know he's going to do some healing stuff too, and that's cool. I think it's stories that brought that many people out to hear what Jesus had to say. In Mark's gospel, he puts it like this. He says, with many more stories like these, Jesus presented his message to them, fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. He was never without a story when he spoke. Like, that's genius. Here's the coolest connection as we draw it to us today, because fine, Jesus told stories, we know what they are, great, okay, fine. But here's, here's how that connects to us. The coolest part is that the commodity today is still stories. That's why the best commercials tell stories and the best movies tell stories and the most fun people at parties <laughs> tell stories, right? Because the commodity today is still stories. And you have a story. Certainly, many of us, all of us, have many stories of how Jesus is working in your life every day. Like, if you don't think that you have 100 stories just today of how God has been working, I just encourage you to get a journal and start writing down every moment of your day or something. Right? Because we have, we have hundreds of moments every day on how Jesus is working in our life, and people are hungry to hear those stories. Right? You also have this, this meta story, this larger story of how you came to know Jesus, which is probably filled with, with tons of little smaller stories in there of God making that happen as, as God protects you or shepherds you or guides you or pushes you or maybe even screamed at you a couple of times, all driving you towards Jesus. Tell those stories. People want to hear those stories. And sometimes we think, well, I don't have a very exciting story. I started by telling you a story about me and Israel in 97. You don't care. I mean, you weren't there. You can't relate. Maybe, but we want to hear stories. So even if you don't think your story is that exciting, it is. People want to hear your story. Jesus told stories to create readiness, to point people to God. 
we can also tell our story of how Jesus is working in our lives and also points people to God. Fourth point, if you stand, we're going to sing and we'll be done.
have a great week this week. Go and follow Jesus. Make disciples. We'll see you next Sunday.